Hi, I'm Lourdes Ortiz. This is the Unveil the Leader podcast. We all know a successful leader, someone that we admire and respect. Maybe you are a leader. And if you are, what kind of leader are you? Find out what moves you to do what you do and what stops you. Let's get started. Our guest is an award-winning speaker, radio personality, an author, entertainer. His name is Walt Grussell. We are going to hear about how he transformed himself from being Walt to being Walt 2.0. He will share the challenges and experiences that he has had over the years to become the leader that he is today. You may find out something that you don't know about Walt, because this time we are going to know who he is, what is it that really makes him stand up and speak up. As you know, his passion is to help people overcome their fears and live their dreams. So let's find out. Welcome, Walt. How are you today? I'm doing great, Lourdes. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to share my story with you and your audience. I am so happy to have you all. Like I said before, what is something that makes you think so positively today? Um, I just grab life by the horns. It's I believe in personal responsibility. So I don't look for other people or other situations to determine my happiness. I look at where I am and then I make choices to take action to improve where I am and to be happy. And that's with respect to health, with respect to career. Uh, and once I learned that lesson, uh, it made life a whole lot more enjoyable and a whole lot easier because I realized it's all in my hands. You are right. So now before we continue on, we would like to know who you are. Who am I? Can you introduce yourself, please? Sure. I was uh, born and raised in Southern California from German immigrant parents. I was very shy and started working in the aerospace industry before my 18th birthday. And I worked there as a technician while I went to college, got an engineering degree. And when I started working, I ended up... Uh, being asked very early in life to be a leader. And for somebody who is very painfully shy and introverted, I didn't get it. But I figured they're my boss, they know better than me, and if they th see that I could be a leader, then I will step up to it and do what I'm asked, but I ask that they train me. So from that point on, I deviated from the technical learning, and I learned as much as I could about leadership. And I learned some lessons that allowed me to be a successful leader and get promotions in leadership to the point where I was a department manager of 100 design engineers, even though I couldn't give an effective presentation. I had terrible stage fright. I would lay in bed the night before the presentation, unable to sleep, dreading having to get up there. I would be looking over at my slides because my mind kept going blank. Um, it was just terrible. Finally... We went through a layoff process, and the department managers had to go and address the people that were not being laid off, explain why we were doing it, and answer their questions. And HR had given us a list of topics, and I kind of read the topics because I couldn't remember them. And my boss called me into his office and says, you know, I love you, Walt, and I, I actually bombed the interview to be a department manager, but he knew that was my stage fright. Not that I couldn't do it, so he overrode the recommendations of HR to make me the department manager. And uh, he said, you really have to do this. Now, every year I would get uh, needs to work on his communication skills in my performance appraisal, and I never really did anything about it, and I kept getting high ratings because I did everything else so well. So I took my weakness, and I didn't focus on improving it, but I made sure I was good at everything else. So at his behest, I joined Toastmasters, where he sent me to HR, and our HR rep, Alan Reed, sent me to uh, Toastmasters. 
And that changed my life, but not immediately. I only spoke six times in the first 18 months because it was painful and I wasn't getting better. But in October of 2011, I met a guy, Darren LaCroix, who we both have uh, as acquaintances, and it was through Darren LaCroix that we met. And I decided I was going to invest in myself, and I bought his training materials. He says, you know, if you buy this and join my Champions Edge group, you'll save 10%, even paying the monthly dues, and you can quit at any time. And if you don't like it, you're still going to be ahead. And I go, okay, I'm an engineer. I can do that math. I'll sign up. And I learned from him, and in February of 2000. I'm sorry, I said 2011, I meant 2007, because in February 2008, I went to a humor boot camp, a storytelling boot camp, and a Lady in the Champs conference, and I learned that, oh, there's formulas for telling stories, I learned that there are formulas for making jokes and being funny, and when I went to Lady in the Champs, I asked everybody there who was getting paid to speak, what is your secret for overcoming stage fright? And they had different things that didn't really resonate with me. But the thing I was impressed with was, you know, these people, they're not like walking around dripping charisma, these high energy, charismatic people that are getting paid to speak. They're normal people just like me. So on the plane back from Vegas, I sat there and go, I don't know what it's going to take, but by August of 2012, when I'm old enough to retire, I want to be good enough to get paid to speak. And that took me on an accelerated journey. I went from being in one Toastmasters club at my job to four Toastmasters clubs. I entered every Toastmasters speaking contest. So I was in two contests a year at what, there's twice a year and two contests. So that's four contests a year in all four clubs. So that amount of stage time, which Darren talks about, helped me get better faster. I ended up taking a stand-up comedy class and got more training on how to be funny. Graduation was doing five minutes of stand-up at the Hollywood Improv in front of a public audience of 200 people with a two-drink minimum. And I was never more terrified in my life before I did that. But when I got off the stage, I was like so high. And even in the middle of my set, my mind went blank. And I reached into my pocket to pull out a card that had the names of the jokes in the order so I could find my place. I put it in my pocket and forgot again. And I reached slowly into my pocket <laughs> And they thought I was doing it for a joke. So they laughed. And then that laughter helped relax me. Because if you can be funny in front of an audience, that's the quickest way to connect with them and feel that they're on your side. So when I speak, most of the time I open with something that's a joke, even if it's what's called observational humor, where you make a reference to something that happened at the event. And just that connection will cause people to chuckle. And that warms me up and gets me going. <laughs> That's an, an amazing story, uh, uh, Walt, and actually a, a very good learning experience. Definitely, definitely. That, you know, facing my biggest fear, because waiting to go on, it's like, why am I here? And I was like in the middle. It took like an hour and a half for me to get my time on stage. And I was like, where's the door? I got, <laughs> how can I get out of here? But I, I stuck it out, and I'm so glad that I did. I know people that have signed up for comedy classes but then chose not to do the Correct. performance. Yes. And uh, to me, that at one level, I wanted to do that, but on another level, I could never let myself do that, regardless right. of how painful I committed and I followed yes. through on my commitments. Yeah. So now deep down there, what is it that ignites your uh, desire to overcome the fear of public speaking? It's probably out of personal loyalty to Rick Pozo, the uh, the leader who gave me my opportunity. Rick and I, Rick and I met before we even met. Uh, we had a company library, and I would check out books uh, from the library on leadership, and he would do the same. And somehow I found out that it was he, he that had it, or 
you know, we were reading the same thing. So I knew we were like-minded people and he became my boss. And then he created a position for me of chief of staff. Most other organizations didn't have chiefs of staff, but he let me use my leadership skills kind of off to the side. And then when an opportunity to reorganize, when we went through a reorganization, he wanted me to be a department manager. So he gave me, and so when he told me, look, you got to do something about this, instead of telling myself no, I finally said, okay, I'm going to do this because I owed him. And the only thing he told me was, don't be that guy. I don't know if you know, that guy is the person who joins Toastmaster and becomes what I think Darren calls speaker man, the guy that's goes from being a shy wallflower to some over-the-top inauthentic exaggerated because it's not authentic correct so i took that to heart and i just go up on in front of audiences and i myself i tell my stories i'm not the most animated person i've taken acting to learn how to be uh more emotional it's not really be more emotional but it's not hide the emotions that i feel i you know when you're shy and introverted you hide yourself from the world Right. And that's, when you do that for 50, 60 years, uh, it's hard not to do that. So by studying acting, and also improv has helped that a lot as well. I uh, That was the other, Toastmasters, stand-up comedy, and improv really changed my life. And improv has lessons that apply to your personal life, to performing, and to business. And So who has helped you in the process? I know now who initially inspire you to do this but in the process who has been very supportive to you um you know it's it's hard to pick just one person because every step of the way if you join toastmasters most people in toastmasters are there to be helpful and i ran into so many people in my toastmasters career who helped me out uh, the encouragement that you get when you go to perform in contests and you're not very good in the beginning but they encourage you to keep trying they tell you what you did well, what you can improve on. You get feedback in every Toastmasters meeting. Now, again, you know, some people are well-meaning in their feedback, but they maybe aren't as knowledgeable. But So one of the things I talk about a lot is judgment. Knowing, you know, listen to everybody, but have the judgment to know what will work for you. And because you're liable to get four or five different ways to do something from different people. One person says do this, another person says do this. Like with diet, I'll take a non-Toastmaster. Somebody will say only eat vegetables, don't eat meat. Somebody else says only eat meat, don't eat vegetables. Uh, Other people say eat six meals a day. Other people say do intermittent fasting where you eat in an eight hour window and fast for 16. And my advice to people, whether it's speaking, diet, exercise is Try different things, find out what works for you, and then do what works for you. Don't blindly trust an expert and be wary of anybody that gives you advice that says one size fits all. Because in life, one size doesn't fit all. I don't think there are very many cases where that's true. That's a very good advice. So listen to everyone, make your own judgment, find out what works for you, and do what fits your needs. Right. And then related to that is... Don't try and be perfect right out the box because that was part of my stage fright. I'd get up in front of an audience and the minute I would stumble, my mind would go blank, I would misspeak, I'd leave out part of the speech that I'd memorized and you don't want to memorize speeches, but I'll get to that maybe later. But the minute something would go off the tracks, then i go, okay, the speech is a failure and then I would kind of bail out on the speech and then it would be just get worse and you'd keep going downhill and you have to like a baby when a baby learns to walk you see it it starts to stand up and it falls down stands up falls down well babies don't go oh i fell down i can't walk i'm never going to walk i'm just going to sit here and never get up they're encouraged to get up they do it they figure it out they learn to walk so be open to fall be open to falling and, and get up you're not defeated until you stop trying to get up you're right So as long as you keep doing that. But the other thing is you want to learn why you fell. That's true. So if you have... What did I do wrong? What did you do wrong? And yeah, people go, oh, 
uh, I just saw this on Twitter the other day. Somebody was saying that, oh, if you fail, you're not bad. That's not true. It doesn't make you a bad person, but you're bad at what you failed at. But that's okay because now you know you can learn to be better and you can go from being bad to good. I went from being right. a bad speaker to being a good speaker, uh, from you know being afraid to being much less afraid and doing it anyway. Right. You know, uh, being, being open to fall. Uh, this reminds me of my experience in cycling when the first day that I used the proper shoes for cycling, I fell six times wow. in one day. Ouch. And my knees were bruised. I did have some scratches, and I did have some bleeding as well. But I figured out what I was doing wrong. And the biggest problem that I had was my own mind, my nervousness. Mm -hmm. I was worried to fall, and then I will fall. Right. So overcoming those fears is the number one. Yeah, and if you had stopped the first time or even the second time instead of the sixth time, you wouldn't have gotten over that and you wouldn't have been able to enjoy the cycling that you've done afterwards, That's right? for sure, definitely. So yep. being persistent and overcome. So now you have, uh, I noticed that you are going to the gym every day. Well, I, I try every day. I have a standing 2 o'clock appointment to go to the gym, but I have not become so rigorous and I just had a discussion with somebody off uh, on Facebook who I met through Toastmasters and she started going and she's every day every day but once you have a habit um, to I don't think it's necessary to go every day as long as you don't you skip once and then stop going Wait so a minute did you say that you have an appointment to go yeah if you look on my at calendar two at two o'clock it's a repeating appointment every day to go at two o'clock and it started out when i worked out with a personal trainer from 20 basically the end of 2012 till uh the end of 2018 and then she retired and i'm on my own but i used to work out with her at two o'clock on the three days a week that i worked out when I started going to the gym by my house, it, because I, if you don't have a set time, then it's like, okay, when do I want to go to the gym? And it becomes harder to do. But if you look on my calendar, you'll see that at 2 o'clock every day it says, Workout LA Fitness. And now on a day like today where I'm doing this interview and then I'm going to go visit with family, I'm not going to go to the gym. And that's fine because if I go five days a week, that's pretty good. You don't have to go seven days a week, 365 days a year, or 366 in this leap year to get a workout. And it is important to get rest and take breaks. So when this happens, I don't fret. And the other thing is I pre-plan my workouts. I know what I'm going to do before I go to the gym. And I do certain things on certain days. And then I, I adjust that process over time as I get stronger, as I feel... Uh, aches and pains like maybe I push too hard or maybe I'm ready to take a step up and if for some reason I've worked out for over an hour and it's I'm feeling kind of tired then I may skip some exercises and I just put a little circle with the line through it emoji next to that that says you know I did I was going to do this I didn't do it but when I copy and paste that into the next day that I do that type of routine then I can take away the little not you know no symbols and and do them so how uh, this discipline has helped you in your other challenges uh, to become the speaker that you are the leader that you are how does the physical discipline has helped you in the other areas um i think by either taking classes or even doing the ra i do a radio show as well you were uh, gracious enough to be my guest uh that schedule that gives my life a structure every thursday i do the show and that's another thing about repetition occasionally life will start getting backed up and i've taken a week or two off of the show because i needed time to get the rest of my life in order in order to continue with this and, and give the radio show the justice that it deserves and have it not become too stressful so it, this is where it's judgment. Are you Like if you stop going to the gym because you're tired one day, and then the next day, you know, I'm still kind of tired, and then you stop going at all, that's bad. You're but, right. And that's why it's good in the beginning maybe to go every day for 
till it becomes a habit and schedule it so that you don't have to decide when to go. It's already on your calendar. You've already budgeted the time. Some people do it before they go to work. I used to be a, there was a period for three years where I went almost every day when the gym opened, six o'clock during the week and eight o'clock on the weekends. But, you know, life changed and I had to go away from that. Or maybe you go after work. The problem with going after work is sometimes you've had a rough day. Sometimes you have to stay late at work and then you don't get your workout in. Right. So it's about your own life, but we have the power within certain limitations to design our own life. Like if you have to be at a job from a certain window, but the time around that window is yours to choose right. to design. And a lot of people don't uh, take ownership of that. And they say, well, you know, I have to work during the day, so I can't go to the gym. It's like. So uh, now, uh, is Walt always positive, motivated, self-started? Or do you ever experience times when you are down and you just don't know why you're doing what you're doing? Um, yeah, I, I, I'll be honest. Occasionally they happen, but I, I, I know tricks like change your state. If you're tired or, or run down, like t I'll take a break from the radio show. Or if I'll, I won't go to the gym that day. If I'm saying, you know what, I'm getting kind of burned out. I need to take a day for myself. But again, I'm making a choice. Um, and every once in a while I go, you know what? I'm 62 years old, you know, maybe I want to just retire from Walt 2.0, the new me, right? And, and just sit around and read, but it, I enjoy making a difference. So usually that's a very temporary situation and I consider it and I go, no, that's not, not going to make you happy in the long run. What you need to do is take a break. Like if I got uh, pressure finding guests for a week. It used to be I'd be calling around for favors, asking somebody to be on my show if I had a scheduling issue. And people oh tell me, God, just I call me. To, yes. <laughs> I'd be happy to be there. But again, this is, you know, I was raised, you never ask for anything, right? And if you go visit my parents when I was a kid, if you go visit somebody else's house and they offer you something, say no. If people offer you things. Really? Yeah, I think it was because we didn't have a lot. And if their kids came over to our house, we couldn't necessarily offer them things. Or she didn't want us to be the kid that goes over and they offer you something and then you eat five bags of potato chips. Is, because isn't this so interesting how in each culture is different? For yeah. example, in my culture, if you are invited to have dinner, you are expected to eat the dinner. I mean, I don't. I mean, I can honestly say yes or no. Yeah. But the culture says if I offer you something and you say no, that means you don't want to connect with me. Yeah, and see that, well, this is maybe, it wasn't like getting invited to dinner would have been, they would have had to check with my parents. I'm talking at small, but, you know, if they offer you ice cream or some sort of a snack, you know, and, and I don't, I don't know what it was, but it's just in my inherent nature. And then right. somebody told told me that, you know what, when somebody offers you something, you need to be gracious and accept it and say thank you. Like if people offer you a gift, right? you know, or, or somebody, you know, offers to buy your book and you decide, no, I, I want as a sign of friendship or whatever, give them the book and they insist on paying at some point. It's gracious to allow them to to pay. Yes. So, but my my first instinct is no, just just help for nothing, and that's sometimes a problem for entrepreneurs that's who want to give away their services for free. Yes. And there's a fine line between, you know, being an entrepreneur and then being a volunteer and being of service. And we all have to figure out what that line is. Yes. And talking about books, uh, I see that I have your book here, Stand Up and Speak Up. Tell us, how did this book start it? Uh, first of all, it has the name of your show. When I was getting ready to retire and had gotten my skill level to be good enough to get paid to speak, I didn't know what I was going to do when I retired. I had gone to a rock star marketing guy, Craig Doeswalt, at the Toastmasters International Convention in... I guess it was the summer of 2011, and he was speaking in a conference room next to Darren LaCroix, and being part of Darren's tribe for so many years, I go, I can do this, but I remember a friend of mine, Enno, telling me about uh, some rock star marketing guy and wanting me to take time off of work and go to his event, and I couldn't 
do that at the time. But I said, let me just listen to what he has to talk about. And he talked about writing a book in 30 days as part one of his processes, wow. one of his programs. And I said, let me let me sign up for him. And it was it included a attendance at his boot camp if you bought his training package. So I did. And I went there and then I joined his mastermind and went there just with a person with a story of overcoming stage fright. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wanted to speak, but I didn't know what. And working with some of the facilitators there, we came up with this brand, Stand Up and Speak Up, which I fell in love with. And a couple of uh, boot camps, they were selling a radio show. And I go, all right, let me sign up for this. If I don't like it after a year, I can quit. But when I was launching the radio show in February of 2013, it's helpful if you have something to sell or something that defines who you are. And they said, well, why don't you write a book or come up with a process of how you help people? So I said, well, writing a book is easier. I have a formula for how to do it in 30 days. And I learned that it, a book doesn't have to be a big book. You don't have to write a 300-page book to publish a book. Right. And actually, people will read a short book a lot. They're more likely to read a short book than a long book. So I wrote a book. I actually repurposed a lot of Toastmasters speeches I gave once I learned from one of our mutual mentors, Craig Valentine, yes. about the power of a foundational phrase. So every speech I did in Toastmasters, once I went on that accelerated learning process, I tried to have a, a point and tell a story that supports the point. And I collected those because I used to write them out back then and try to memorize them and then convert them from how you would write it to how you would speak it and deliver that speech. When I wrote the book, I took the spoken speeches and converted it into something that would be read, and those became the chapters of the book. Okay, very interesting. So if you want to write a book and you speak, or if you want to write a book and you've written articles, you can repurpose your ideas, or you can speak about what you write in an article. The important thing is to collect ideas and stories from your life that will support those ideas and then you package them up in whatever is appropriate, be it a book, a series of magazine articles, speeches. It's all about communication. They're just different forms. And it's all about making a point and sharing a story that reinforces it. Well, you have so much knowledge and experience. It will be amazing all the people that can benefit from listening to this. And you transform yourself from being a shy, timid individual to a manager, a supervisor, a leader, a host. Mm -hmm. How did you implement those leadership skills into your lifestyle? Uh, well, one of the things I learned uh, is that it's this concept of cross-training, uh, I used to play recreational softball in my company softball leagues. And I thought as my knees were starting to give me trouble, maybe I would be an umpire. And umpiring is a thankless job. You definitely don't do it for the money, but it would allow me to stay engaged with the sport that I liked. And they need good umpires, people that are willing to show up and, and hustle and put forth effort. And I did it for a a motive that came out a little bit into the journey and as somebody who's shy and I was always I never said no to my bosses if they said you know what this area in another part of the company needs somebody to lead a project we're going to send you over there to lead it so imagine shy introverted very uncomfortable with new people getting sent somewhere else well I said you know if I become an umpire I have to go to a field with 10 people on each team minimum and or lead them through playing a game and make decisions and communicate with people I don't know. And that is good cross-training for being a, somebody who gets put into remote organizations, not your home, 
to go lead a team. Yes. So that type of cross training. So, uh, and if you learn a lesson like the, I try and apply it in other areas because usually, you know, and I learned this a little bit in Toastmasters and I think I'd learned it a little bit before, you know, if you have a point in a story that illustrates the point, well, in any story of your life, you probably learn more than one lesson. So if you um, learn a discipline, learn a skill, and I was always the out-of-the-box thinker at the job. I had that reputation. So when they were redesigning processes, I always got asked to go there because I was open-minded. Uh, there was a movie on baseball based off of a book called Moneyball where a baseball team, the Oakland A's, didn't have a lot of money, and they tried to figure out how they could compete with other teams that had huge budgets. And what they did was, instead of looking at talent through the eyes of scouts and how somebody looked, how they threw, they looked at more the results that people gave, and it was a data-driven approach. Now, I asked our HR people when I got involved in the hiring process, hey, what do we know that people with... 4.0 GPAs tend to do better than people with 3.2s. And it was funny. I preferred somebody with a 3.2 who got along well with people and was a good team player. A lot of the people, and not, you know, there is no it's black and white. Sure. We live in a gray area, so don't, don't, uh, do, don't say I'm saying this about everybody, but a lot of people that had high GPAs, 4.0s, they didn't work well with others. That's true. And same thing with people with PhDs. Now, I just interviewed Laurel Felt, who has a PhD this week on my show. Great person. This doesn't apply to her. But at the workplace, you know, we work in an engineering environment. A lot of the scientists, some of them, there was an arrogance that came with that, and they weren't necessarily nice to people, either intentionally or unintentionally. And, again, there are many that this doesn't apply to. But I was just wondering if we had any data because we would sit around on our college uh, interview days and there would be, what do you think of this candidate? And there would be threes on a scale of one to five, 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 three, three, five, five. And it was invariably some people were GPA driven, other people were people skills driven. And I always felt that if you had good people skills and you had a good leader who could put people in the best roles to be successful, you'll do better as a team than a team of dysfunctional, uh, really smart people who can't work with each other because in, when you add up all the knowledge, it's actually less because they don't communicate. Whereas if you have people with slightly less uh, brain power, but it's all worked together and you get the synergy that Stephen Covey in The Seven Habits talks about instead of one plus one equals two, one plus one equals uh, three or five or ten or a hundred, I always would go for the synergy in building teams. And that's where my role as a leader was to develop those teams. And um, I had a boss tell me one time, uh, he wasn't familiar with me. He goes, it doesn't look like you do anything, but every team that you're a part of, they perform really well. And I took that as a compliment because I wasn't saying, hey, look at me, look at me, the leader. I got the most out of the team and allowed the team to be successful and the team took the glory and I just happened to be a part of things that were successful. And once people realized that, then they did that. But it wasn't like an immediate thing. I'm like an acquired taste. You had to get right. to know me to realize my value. But then once you did, people wanted me to work for them. Like Rick wanted me to lead a department, even though people who just saw how I interviewed said, no, we don't really want him to be a department. Yeah, we so, don't think he's ready. So you went from being a, in the softball league to being an umpire to think out of the box, to be part of the selection team in your company to be a leader of the department what kind of leadership skills can you share with us so that all those leaders that are starting can take those with them okay um that's a good question one of the things is uh, you don't have to want to be a leader to be a good leader in fact i found reluctant leaders were often better leaders just like with speaking, as I mentioned earlier, you don't have to be dripping with charisma to be an effective public speaker. 
you don't have to be a dynamic, outgoing extrovert to be a good leader. Uh, if The way I would find reluctant leaders, and this is kind of how I was discovered, is who do people gravitate to without any uh, title or authority? Who are the natural leaders in a group? Who are the people that everybody respects? I was going to say likes, but respect is better than likes because sometimes as a leader you have to do something that's unpopular but people respect you because they know it's the right choice and they trust you so that is part of it and then there's a model of leadership called servant leadership where the goal or the purpose of the leader is to serve the people that they work and but part of that service is to set a clear direction to to lead the team but it is also to listen to the team and get the team to buy in. And if the team says, you know what, we could do this project. It, we said it's going to take two months and you need it in six weeks. We can do it in six weeks, but you have to get us this. So as a leader, you listen to that and you don't just say, well, I need you to work instead of 40 hours a week, work 60 hours a week till we meet the deadline. But if you could get them a tool, a software tool, a hardware tool that will allow them to meet their deadline in the time that you need, then you do that. You provide them what they need. You listen to them. Uh, one of the things I learned was uh, they say that everybody is an expert within five feet of their workstation. And I would see engineers come in and tell assembly ladies how to build a board. And these ladies would you know, fortunately, early in my career, while I was going to school and working, I was a technician in a lab. And the assembly ladies, Lil and Priscilla, they would come over and talk to me sometimes. And they would say, you know, that guy's telling me how to do this. And he doesn't know what he's talking about. He may have an engineering degree, but he just got out of school. I've been building these boards for years. That's not how you should do it. So when you get your degree, don't be that guy. And I listened. Yes. <laughs> and another one. That lesson I learned from uh, Priscilla. So let me make sure yeah. that I, I got that one. So number one, to be a servant, to apply the term servant leadership, it's important to set clear direction so that you can lead your group, but it's most importantly, listen to them. Listen to them, solicit their input. You can't always give them what they want, but a lot of times people just want to be heard. And if you can explain to them why you can't do what they need, there may be a limitation that they're not aware of. We don't have the budget. We don't have the ability to do that. Or I looked into it, and it's going to take six weeks to get that tool, and by the time it gets here, we're not going to do it. However, we're going to still order it, so the next time we have this situation, we're going to make your job easier. So it's listening to the people, factoring in their needs, and figuring out as a group collectively what's the right way to go but as the leader, it's your job to understand the big picture, manage the constraints, and yet communicate that to the team. So now I was looking at the fact that you are writing a book. Great leaders ask them questions. Why that title? There, again, early in my career, one of uh, my leaders, I was in a meeting and I was really junior and my boss's boss and his boss were in a meeting and the highest level boss in the meeting said something that I knew that wasn't right and I was afraid to say anything one because if I would try to talk it would go because I couldn't speak but also it's like am I stepping out of place and he said afterwards when I talked to my boss's boss Earl Pay Earl told me don't ever not speak up in a meeting when you know something isn't right. Okay, have the courage to do that. So I took that on another level. Uh, in meetings, I would, let's say you had a meeting and you're inviting multiple organizations. And let's say you couldn't invite the quality person or the quality person canceled or for some reason didn't show up. So a lot of times you'll be in a meeting and you'll make decisions and then people will go off and take action based on that. But the person who isn't there might have some really valuable thing to contribute. And what that would do is if you went off on the wrong path, 
you could waste a lot of t it'll either go with a defect or you have to spend a lot of extra money to redo it so i would say okay i'm gonna put on my hat if i were the quality guy based on what i know about quality what questions and concerns might they have now i might ask a question that is totally irrelevant or somebody may already know the answer to and they've already thought about but i said look this may be a dumb question but and then i would ask the question and nine times out of ten it was a dumb question but that tenth time there was tremendous value so i just owned it i said i'm the vice president of dumb questions and even excellent <laughs> and even amongst my team when i was a department manager and i had my section managers i would say look this may be a dumb question but and it was because I was okay, once I got over that fear that the question I was asking might be dumb, and I don't care because if it's not dumb, you know, silence means it doesn't get asked. And I'm willing to be told, no, that's okay, you know, that that doesn't make any sense nine times to get the tenth. So that was value I brought to teams and to meetings, that fearlessness of asking dumb questions. It So that's why I called it that because... If you have a concern to not ask a question and not get it addressed for fear that it's going to be called a dumb question, you detract from your value because that the time that you're right and you don't speak up, you know, you're not standing up and speaking up and you're not making your fullest contribution. You know, you are uh, speaking to me. I have gone through that uh, for years mm -hmm. where I didn't want to speak up in a meeting mm -hmm. for the fear of First of all, not being the right person to ask. Mm -hmm. Number two, asking the dumb question. And number three, not knowing how to say it in English. Yeah, that makes it even harder. Not saying the proper word or not mm -hmm. pronouncing it properly. So why would I even want to embarrass myself? Right. So no, thank you for sharing that. Well, this is incredible. The Vice President of Dumb Questions. That's me. What a great title. Yep. Every company <laughs> should to, have one. Something to be proud of, really. So tell me about your book. Uh, what are we looking at to read in that book? It's it's a it's mainly a compilation of articles that I've written. I have written a lot of articles that have been published in trade magazines. A, a PR firm would pitch, help me write articles, and then pitch them to different things. I've been in. Uh, legal magazines for different states' legal uh, organizations. Like, for example? Um, like, I think it's the Virginia Lawyer magazine. I've been in uh, landscaping magazines. I've been in HR magazines. I've been in uh, it's a Canadian company. I've stopped working with the firm that helped me place the articles a few years ago. But earlier this, well, I guess it was late in uh, 2019, I got a call from a lady at a they were launching a magazine in Canada. I forget what the industry was. And she goes, can I use your article? And I said, sure, because it's it's good publicity. Now, I, I paid somebody to place it, but it allows me to get my message out. And uh, people then, if they're interested, they can contact me to follow up. And I had somebody in a machine shop, uh, a machine industry manufacturing in Florida, reach out to me and send me an email. And I corresponded a few times with that person. So what's your favorite uh, article? Um, I have many, though. Probably one of them that's a little out of the box, we talked about that, is the value of asking for forgiveness instead of permission. And the, the genesis of that article was, I wasn't even, I don't even know if I was an engineer. I think I just got my engineering degree. And it was at the end of the day on a Friday and work was winding down and a bunch of us were in the lab talking about, you know, solving the problems of the company like people do, right? Yes. <laughs> and a guy from our transportation department showed up with a big a box containing a big expensive piece of equipment and he goes, I need somebody to sign for this. And our supervisor had gone to another building for a meeting because normally we would ask him to sign. And all my more senior coworkers said, oh, I can't sign for that. I can't sign. And I asked the guy, is it a signature level authority issue that you need a certain level? He goes, no, I just need somebody to vouch for the fact that I dropped this equipment off in this 
lab. And I said, I'll sign for it. What are they going to do? Fire me? I mean, I'm, I'm doing good work. If this is wrong, I would rather they tell me, you know, you're a good guy, but you shouldn't have signed for it versus, oh, the world's going to end. You're fired for signing for this. I didn't think that was an outcome. So I took and maybe that's why that same supervisor asked me to be uh, to get into supervision because I took the initiative. Right. And in life, you thought out of the box. I thought out of the box, but I also said, you know what? You can't live your life always asking for permission. That's not a good employee. You want employees who know how to think for themselves and trust it. I had a boss that's a high-level boss that wanted to instill the philosophy of empowering people to make decisions. Says every once in a while we'll break glass, we'll sweep it up. And we'll hopefully learn from the experience. But you enable so much more productivity by not hamstringing your organization with having to ask for permission every step of the way, micromanaging every decision. And so when I hired people, I tried to hire people who I would guess had good judgment and who I felt could learn to develop their judgment as they went on and get better and better at it. But that's that's a very important skill set versus somebody who's like, no, I can't do that. I got to get permission from my boss because that just slows your whole, whole organization down. Yes, totally. It limits your ability to perform and limits everybody's ability. Definitely. Yes, uh, very good. So now, how can we find out about your experience or your I would say embarrassment or embarrassing experience that you have had over the years, whether it's in public speaking or in leadership. Oh, wow. There's so many. It's hard to probably pick one because... The most embarrassing. Which one would that be? It's probably my mind going blank at the Hollywood improv doing stand-up comedy. Tell me about that. Okay. So I'm doing stand-up comedy at the Hollywood... It's graduation, so I'm not an experienced comedian. This is the... I. I've gone to a couple places to practice, but this was really my first time in front of an audience performing stand-up comedy. I'd written jokes over an eight-week period. They've been vetted to be quote-unquote funny. And I was up there doing my routine, and my legs were shaking, my hands were shaking. <laughs> and I and the thing is, one of the things that got me over stage fright in Toastmasters was making eye contact. And when I speak to an audience... I don't speak to a sea of faces. I zero in at one person at a time, and it's like I'm having a conversation at a cocktail party, and I'm speaking to a person. I'm speaking to a person. I look in the back of the room and speak to that person. And as the eye contact gets weak and I start to get nervous, I find a friendly face. And people will talk back to you with their smiles, their eyes, their body right. language. And if somebody's not... Find somebody near them. Those people exist in the audience that will give you feedback. And, and what happened? But in, an, in a comedy club, they got bright lights. You might not even be able to see the people in the front row. So I am even more nervous. I'm doing something I've never done before. And then my mind went blank. And I'm like, oh, I put my jokes on a card. Let me figure out what joke did I just tell? What's next? I looked at it. Oh, it's this one. Go. I put it in my pocket, and my mind went blank again. Oh, no. And I'm like, oh, this is this is not good. <laughs> this it's is terrible. But I went and slowly reached into my pocket, and they laughed because they thought I was pretending to forget, if only. <laughs> but when I pulled it out, I did it. I was able to get there, and I think I ended up skipping a joke because one thing in comedy and as a speaker, you never want to go over your time. And they told us, do not go over your time. And I figured having the little brain spasm, uh, I probably should skip a joke. And I finished, and they clapped, and it went, it was okay. But I was never more afraid. I mean, at work, if you forget, you can always turn your back on the audience and be that presenter that looks at the screen to read is PowerPoint, right? Correct. If you forget, yes. which is like the worst thing, but it's worse to stand up there and go, bleh, 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 I don't know what to say next. That's so. a huge challenge, and you handle it so well, and you made it look natural, and you even got a laugh out of it. Definitely, definitely. And that's the key. That's the success. Yeah. Well, you have come a long way oh, from uh, being disciplined physically, 
from overcoming your fears of public speaking, taking the challenges from being a, an umpire in baseball to being a leader, departmental leader, to now hosting your own show. Amazing. Thank you. Amazing world. And yeah. thanks for sharing all these experiences. I'm sure there is uh, so much value that people can resonate to, to, to that. So now, how can we connect with you? I have a website, waltgrassel.com, and my last name is spelled G-R-A-S as in Sam, S as in Sam, L as in Larry. And you can find me on all the social media because of my unique last name. If you put in Walt Grassel, you should find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And uh, I'm happy to connect with people. Uh, I have a show on the Star Worldwide Network called Stand Up and Speak Up. If you go to their website, you can find my show. And uh, my webpage tells all about the different things that I do. I have a page for uh, performing, for speaking, for writing, and for the radio show. So I'm always anxious to get new people, and I always welcome the opportunity to speak to people because if I can just touch one person and help one person take a step to make their life better, then it's a, been a good investment in my time. You just listened, the host of Stand Up and Speak Up. He shared with us the challenges and experiences that he had to overcome to become the leader that he is today. Unveil the Leader is an opportunity for us to identify what it is that is stopping us from becoming the new version of us, just like Walt became Walt 2.0. Edison says, if we all did the things that we are capable of, we will astound ourselves. We will see you at the next episode. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please leave us a review and make sure you subscribe to our show. If you want to know more about Ambel the Leader, send us an email. Lourdes Ortiz Speaks at gmail.com and join us for our next episode.